Welcome to The Anchor, the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel San Pedro. invite you to join us as we journey through God's Word together, learning how to be anchored in Jesus and reflecting His grace. Here is Pastor Jerry Cesario with today's message. Father, we thank you for this time of study in your Word, and as we just look at the events of the night where you were betrayed and arrested, Lord, even then you displayed such poise and dignity as God yet revealed the frailty of your manhood as you were ready to go to the cross. We ask that you would teach us tonight. Let us learn from these verses what we can learn to know you more and to grow in our knowledge of you and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Keeping up in our timeline in the gospel of john jesus is finished praying in front of his disciples and although john does not record in his account he has finished praying alone to the father in fact john's account does not cover many of the details found in the others and uh, you'll notice that when you compare the other gospels there's a lot of details that john leaves out many people have tried to you know figure out why well really uh, to be honest with you uh, most people believe that John wrote his account much later, that the rest of the Gospels had already been written, and he just didn't want to repeat what was already well known among the church. John set out to write an account of the deity of Christ, really showing Jesus. And that's why there's the I am statements all throughout the Gospel of John. You'll see one of those tonight displayed in a very powerful way. You know, he just wanted to reveal Jesus, unveil Jesus for who he is as God in the flesh, God who came to save sinners. John's gospel did open up and give new insights, new miracles, some pretty amazing things that we've seen so far in the last several months as we've been in the gospel of John. On this night, as Jesus is with the disciples, the darkest night of all of human history, let's never forget that. This is the darkest time in human history. We have had dark times in human history, right? We have had wars. We have had things that have happened in human history. I mean, we had the bubonic plague. We've had events that struck us and the world wars. We've had, you know, 9-11. We've had tragic events, dark days in history. But this is the darkest day in all of human history. This is the day that God will die for the sins of the world. And it begins now. Look at verse 1 of chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, well, that was the prayer that we looked at on last Thursday and Sunday in chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, Jesus had spoken his final words to the disciples. He had prayed for them. Then he proceeded across the Kidron brook to his favorite place, to pray. There are some things here to point out that have great symbolic significance. And if you know John from reading even his epistles and especially in the book of Revelation, John is a master of writing things symbolically. And he, even here, 
There are some amazing things in these, just these few verses. We're not going to really cover that many verses tonight, to be honest with you. But there's some things to point out here. First, Jesus now leaves the city, and he crosses over the brook Kidron. In the Hebrew, it's the Sidron. You know, when you think of a brook, what do you think of? Like, oh, I'll just go there and pray and read my Bible. This is not the Kidron Brook. This is not even anything remotely close to what the Kidron Valley was in that time and before. Sidron, I'm going to start saying Sidron from now on. Sidron in Hebrew means a black torrent or uh, literally black sadness, the place of black sadness. Sidron was a dark, fast-flowing brook rising there near Jerusalem that came out of the ground. You know, there's many springs in that area, okay? We know there's the spring of Gehon, there's, there's the pool of Siloam. Kidron, Sidron, was one of those springs somewhere in Jerusalem that sprung out, and it was a very fast-flowing brook that rose out of Jerusalem, flowing down through the Kidron Valley on for about 20 miles. And it emptied into, anyone know where it empties into? The Dead Sea. The historian Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote along with the Romans, he recorded the history of the Jews, his famous writings, you know, many volumes is the antiquity of the Jews. He recorded that the brook was on the east side of Jerusalem between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. So there's a valley in between where the Temple Mount sits and then the Mount of Olives goes up. When you go to Israel, they take you there. You do this. You march down. They take you up to the top, and you do a Bible study at the top of the Mount of Olives, and then you march on down. You walk through the Garden of Gethsemane, because they know where it is. It's got to be somewhere in that general area. And then you walk across the Kidron Valley and Brook. And I can't remember if there's water there now. I think it's more of a runoff kind of thing. And then you go up in, into the Temple Mount from that direction. Well... In Bible times, Sidron was used to carry the sewage away from the city of Jerusalem. So it's a cesspool. It's not a pool. It's, it's all the sewage. There's a lot of people who live in this city. It's raw sewage, and it was also the waste from the sacrifices and all the blood from the temple sacrifices. We know that at this time in history, uh, again, Josephus records for us, there was much expectation of the Messiah during these, these couple of years. In this particular Passover season, some two million worshipers, pilgrims, had come to Jerusalem that year when Jesus was there. The city was packed. And in those days, the religious leaders had realized it, it was going to take them a couple of days to sacrifice all the lambs. So they had begun the sacrificing of all the Passover lambs. At the time in the night, they would go all through the night and all the way up till you know, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon when the final one would be sacrificed and the high priest would take the blood of that one you know, and do the final blessings. Well, think about it. The blood of the lambs was flowing through that brook when Jesus crossed over. Jesus, the Lamb of God, now walks over the brook uh, Sidron, and reality hits him hard. This place was associated with mourning and darkness, and he knew that. The people with him knew that. That's the history of this area. And now 
Jesus walks over that. You know, I was a paramedic. I've mentioned this before. If you've worked in the medical field, especially in the emergency field, or especially in the you know, paramedic field, you are exposed to large amounts of blood. I have seen people stabbed to death with all the blood in their body on the floor. It smells. It's a strong, irony smell. It is really a strong smell. Fishing, when you're gutting fish, right, Harold? You smell it. There's a smell. Can you imagine what, uh, I think it was like some, somewhere on the number of 250,000 lambs were being slaughtered that period when, when Jesus is walking over that brook. He can smell that. They can all smell that. I mean, they could have taken a different route to avoid this. In ancient times, the Sidron Valley was also used during times of spiritual awakening as the repentant kings of Israel would go down, they would take all the idols from the previous king and from around Jerusalem and they would take them down and they would smash them in the, the valley there and then toss all of it after they beat it down to dust and, and just junk and they would throw it in there so it would flow away to the Dead Sea. It made the waters black. That's where it gets its name, the black blackness, the sad blackness, the torrent of blackness. This area was referred to in Joel 3.2 and Joel 3.14 as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's name means Yahweh judges. That's in Joel 3.2. In Joel 3.14, it's called the Valley of Decision. You know, if you're familiar with that passage, multitudes and multitudes in the Valley of Decision on the Day of the Lord. It's, it's a picture of when God will judge sin at the last day. You know, symbolically, the nations, well, the nations will be gathered, but obviously they, all the nations can't fit there in that one little area below the Temple Mount. But it's symbolic of the day when the Messiah came and sin would be judged because it, it represented in all those years past when God judged the nation and when they finally repented. You know, and Joel gives the challenge there to the nation of Israel in his writings, you know, where are you going to be on that day? Today is the day of decision. Make a decision. Serve Yahweh or don't. You know, and then there would be reform in those times. When Joel's prophesying, there was no more reform. Their days were numbered. The Babylonians were coming. Listen, why is this symbolically significant? Well, when Jesus walked across that valley and across the brook Cedron, sin was symbolically under his feet and about to be judged. When Jesus returns in triumph and glory, he will descend from the Mount of Olives and he will walk over the valley and that brook once again. But this time it will explode with a fresh river water will explode out as the Mount of Olives cleaves in two and the river blows up from down in that valley and it just flows. It cleanses the whole region and it flows all the way down to the Dead Sea and the Dead Sea will once again be alive. We read this in Zechariah chapter 14, specifically verse 8. I was looking this up a little bit today and there's articles over the last couple of years in Israel, the revival of the Red Sea. They're starting to see now some areas of the Red Sea that are reviving and some fresh water starting to seep into the Dead Sea. And, and of course, the Messianic Jews are really excited about this because, you know, the Bible says that, you know, when Messiah comes, the waters will be made fresh. Well, a lot of them are very 
you know, they're orthodox or they have got their different views because they rejected Christ, unfortunately. But even that's being used by many to awaken them and realize these things are starting to happen here. The, you know, what do we do? What do we do? Messiah is coming. Listen, Jesus made the decision. He walked in the valley of decision for you. He made the decision to conquer sin. And every soul must now come to that spiritual valley of decision and decide if they will follow him and receive his offer of salvation. Those who do will experience the refreshing cleansing of the soul as rivers of living water blow forth from them, as Jesus said, right, back, back earlier in the Gospel of John. Whoever comes to me, whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink of the living water that I have. He told that to the woman at the well in chapter 4, and I think in chapter 6 or 7, he stands up at the temple and declares that he is the living water. They will be with him, cleansed, flowing with living water for all of eternity. Those who refuse will be judged. They will remain in their filth, the filth of all their idolatries and wickedness until the day they are swept away into the blackness of eternal separation from God. As always, when we read things like this, you know, John gives us a story, but we can go deeper. We can look at some of these historical things and, and say, why did Jesus walk there? Why there? Everything Jesus did had significance. And this is one of those times when the scriptures reminds us that we need to implore souls to come to Christ and make a decision for him before it's too late. And one day it will be too late. Secondly, there was at this time, and still today, only for about the last 900 years or so, there's olive groves that fill the area there at the base of the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane comes from the Aramaic word, or two words, gat semene, meaning olive press. So we know by the name of it that it probably was a major olive pressing station there for people to bring their olives from the groves that were there, and people that had their other groves, they would bring their olives in. People do that today for olive oil pressing and even for grapes, for wine and stuff. They'll have central areas and vats and things like that. So it means the olive press. Think about the significance of that. It is here that Jesus will begin the experience of the full pressing of the Father's righteous judgment upon sin. It is here that he will tremble at the thought of drinking the cup of God's wrath for sinners as he will step into the full bearing of the weight of sin. You know, Matthew 26 and Luke chapter 22 we read here, and this is something John leaves out, and we need to talk about it. We need to make sure we understand why Jesus went there as well. As he's praying, he sweats, and he's agonizing in prayer and crying out, a groaning and a moaning in prayer. This is real now. He knows the time has come. It's, the disciples are off in the distance. They're, they're sound asleep. And he's the only one there. He will go to the cross alone. He's going to pray alone and he's crying out in agony, and he's in so much distress and agony that when he begins to sweat, great drops of blood and water are mingled together as he sweats. This is a, a known condition. It's very rare, uh, but it is a known condition seen in times of great stress in people. He asks the Father, 
You remember the passage. He asked the Father, if there be any other way, please take this cup from me. But nevertheless, thy will and not mine. You know, the question is rhetorical because the plan was affirmed before Jesus came and it was confirmed at the end of his ministry. There is no other way. Jesus is almighty God, omniscient God, in charge of creation and sovereign over the entire universe. You need to understand the significance of that, Christian. People that you know that haven't come to Christ need to understand the significance of that. There is no other way. If there was another way, Jesus would have took it. He would have made it. He would have found it. There is no other way. It is only through his blood. It is only through the cross that you can be saved. There's no other way. Because Jesus said what? I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. As Jesus concludes his prayer, he receives a ministering touch by an angel who strengthens him. And you find that in the other gospel accounts. You guys, that to me, I was, just, I was just dwelling on that for a little bit yesterday and thinking about it today. Think about that. That's mind-blowing. Jesus has, has already told the, the high priest. He's told, you know, he'll tell them again. He's, he's going to tell Pilate the same thing. He's got legions of angels at his fingertips. I imagine every time Jesus was speaking, the angels were just wrapped with attention. There was times when they threatened him, right? The, the people rose up to pick up stones to kill him. I bet the angels all stiffened and grabbed their swords, waiting for the call. Because you know, they probably didn't fully understand the plan either. It's like, is this the time where we destroy this world finally and get rid of all of its sin? I mean, they're, they're waiting for Jesus. And at this moment, you know, however that works in the spiritual realm, in the hierarchy of angels, there's one angel that's allowed. Go minister to the son. He, he needs a strengthening touch right now. What do you do? What do you do as an angel? To go minister to God whom you've worshipped ever since you were created. What do you do? And he strengthens him. He lays his hand upon him and, and just Jesus strengthens up and firms up and you know he's ready for the next step. And Judas now arrives. Verse 2. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, there are many layers to the betrayal of Judas, and here we see another one. Now, Judas knows that Jesus prays here because He's been here before with him to pray. Because this, it says this is a place that Jesus often met with his disciples. Judas knew where he was. They went to the house. They left the house. I'm sure that somebody at the house, somebody around said, oh, they, they headed off in that direction. Judas knows where he is because Judas had been there. How, how deep the betrayal already was, but now Judas leads them to the place of intimacy, the place where he learned how to commune with God by going with Jesus and seeing Jesus pray there. And then not only that, but he brings a detachment of troops. The word is spirion in the Greek. It, it, it means a band or a cohort. It's a, a one-tenth of a legion, of a Roman legion. So 
he brings, however they're able to wrangle this, because there's a lot of people in town. Now, this is serious. They're going to lay charges that Jesus is a malefactor and that he is trying to overtake Caesar's throne. That's going to be the, the game plan here in the next 24 hours. So Judas and the high priest, they're able to get a, a, about 600 Roman soldiers to come out to arrest Jesus. Not to mention, as they come out with all their lanterns and torches and weapons, and there's a, officers from the chief priests and all the Pharisees, so you've got all the bunch of religious leaders are there. And then what else is going on? People have been celebrating. It's Passover. Jesus is up. People are up. We don't know how late it was at this particular point of the night. So there's other people, hey, what's going on? All the looky-loos now are coming out. What's going on? Hey, what's going on? You know, why are we going up there at night? Is something happening? And so there's, there's a lot of people here just to arrest Jesus. Note this. They come to arrest Jesus with weapons and carrying lanterns and torches to light the way in the darkness of night. What a sad sight this is. Jesus had declared that he was the light of the world. He had called all men and women to come to him and have the light of heaven in them. And here are men searching for the light of the world with lanterns and torches that they have lit and they still can't see the light of the world as he sits in the middle of the garden. Jesus, therefore, verse 4, knowing all things that would come upon him. Again, always a reminder, nothing took the Lord by surprise, nothing took the Father by surprise. Jesus knew all things. He had told the disciples for three and a half years, all things. Notice what it says. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? No, that Jesus doesn't wait for them to find him. He steps forward. He goes towards the angry mob. No weapons were needed. Jesus would willingly go to the cross, so he willingly goes forward to them. And then what happens next, you guys, is stunning. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. The he is italicized. It's not in the original text. I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Note that. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Now, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Not only does Jesus willingly step forward, he speaks first and asks them who they're looking for. He asks them this question, uh, in order to draw out from their own mouths who he is and what they intend to do. You know, God doesn't play games. You know, what does the scripture say? God will not be mocked. Jesus knows what they're doing. He knows why they're there. He needs to hear them say it with their own mouths. They are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. But the reality is they are speaking to Jesus as God, their own creator. When they ask, Jesus answers, Jesus refers to himself again. I think this is probably the 11th or 12th time uh, he uses the ego, am I, the I am, covenant name of God, the name that spoke from the burning bush and made Moses kick off his shoes. 
stand there in the dust of the desert realizing he was on holy ground. These guys don't even realize that they have now uh, entered onto holy ground. And Jesus speaks. And when he says this, note what happens. They are overwhelmed with the power in the name of God as they are pushed back and fall to the ground. Uh, the Greek word pipto is used there, meaning to fall or to be thrust down. Really the idea of the word when it says that they fell to the ground, or drew back and fell, that they were thrust down to the ground. Think about that. Jesus speaks and 600 or more people are thrust down into the dust. I mean, they are laid out. Now, as they gather themselves together, stunned and confused at probably what just happened, if I was there, I, I hope I would have ran far. But I wouldn't. That's why I needed a Savior, isn't it? Verse 7, then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm sure that the second time was a little, um, who, who is that guy? <laughs> and Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. I'm sure they flinched when he said it the next time. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way meaning the disciples, that they might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And when Jesus asks again, they confirm that they're looking for him, and he affirms that they have found him. He knows that things could get out of hand, and only he is the one they need. So he asks that they let his disciples go. Now it's interesting to note that John writes here that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. It's interesting because Jesus had prayed specifically, right, in chapter 17, verse 2, you know, as he begins his prayer in front of them, that he would lose none of those that God gave him, none of the disciples that are standing there in his hearing. He would lose none of them that night. And, you know, he's already talked about those who would believe and follow later. He's already talked about us being in the Father's hand. But it's interesting because as Jesus prayed this, John is inspired to write this down and record this as scripture. See, we don't stop to think about that sometimes. You know, the scriptures are what we have, but Jesus was writing scripture. God gave the Old Testament to Moses and the, the prophets and the psalmists to write, but Jesus began with the New Testament writing, you know, uh, speaking, and his words are now recorded. So this is prophecy being fulfilled, but it's not an Old Testament prophecy. It's Jesus' prophecy, verifying that he is God. He is the only prophet that is valid to speak for God such things. I mean, they could have taken everybody and arrested them all that night. I'm sure, if you really think about it, watching the progression of Jesus' ministry, watching all the things that happened, um, and you get a hint of it in a little bit here with Peter and, and the, the people starting to say, aren't you one of them? I, I bet. They would have gladly taken all of them, thrown them all in prison. You know, maybe not all of them would have been crucified like Christ, but they, they were glad to do that, and they, they will. You know, no doubt this scene was powerful, and it gives us a glimpse of what will happen one day when Jesus does come forward from his long stay in heaven and speaks physically once again to this world. 
imagine that. We as believers have been given the promise that the next time we hear his voice physically, it's in the rapture. But when this world hears his voice physically, that's not going to be a good thing. In the garden that night, as God spoke, men were laid low and found themselves briefly down amongst the dust of the earth. One day, Jesus will speak and every man and woman will be brought low and they will bow down and confess that he is God to the glory of the Father, as Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11 tells us. A preview of that happened in the garden on that night. Just kind of thinking about this, there's something else that just came to mind in me, and I'm just going to throw this out at you. Let me ask you something. Judas was there, right? Verse 5 says Judas was there. So we know that he was one who fell down on the ground. Let me ask you a question. Who was in Judas at this point? Satan. Satan. In chapter 13, when Jesus gave him every chance to repent, right? We looked at this in depth a few weeks ago. He handed him the bread with the sop on it, and the scripture says, at that point, Satan entered Judas. So was it Judas that fell? Oh, Satan. That's a powerful image, you guys. Because at the fall of Adam and Eve, the curse was announced upon mankind, right? Well, who received the curse first? Go back to Genesis chapter 3 and look. Satan is judged first. Then Adam, then Eve. Satan was the one responsible. Adam was the one who listened to his wife and was deceived. But Adam was the one responsible for sin entering into creation. But Satan was the one responsible for coming and tempting him. And he's going to bear the full weight of God's wrath as well. Satan was the one whom the curse was pronounced on first. Satan was told that on his belly he would go and he would eat dust, the dust of the earth for the rest of his days. It's a symbol of the lowest he could go away from what he once had with God. You know, if you read Ezekiel chapter 13, it tells us that Satan had a very high and prominent place in creation prior to man, or maybe as, even as Adam was here. We don't know when the fall of Satan happened in the spiritual realm. And most people believe, because it says he was created with his, his pipes and timbrels, that he was probably one who reflected the glory of God for the universe so that all could worship God. And at one point, he decided he wanted that glory, that he was cast down. He lost his position. And when he did that and ruined this earth by his deception and lies, and I remember Jesus said he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, he was told on his belly he would go and eat the dust of the earth all the days of his life. It's symbolic of how low he had gotten from his position that he had, leading worship probably in the realm of heaven. Now many people believe that the serpent, whatever the serpent was, was transformed into a snake and that's the snakes. We have a psychological fear of snakes because of that in our psyche as humans. I don't know. 
that starts getting a little strange to me. Um, but there's people that teach that, so, you know, it is what it is. I don't like snakes. I don't like any reptiles or birds, so that's just me. I don't like anything that moves skittery that I can't, like, look at their eyes and say, aww, you know. Well, God went on to say, in the cursing of the devil, he went on to say how the Messiah would come. And when he came, he would do what? He would crush the head of the serpent. The image there, and I think Mel Gibson did a good job on this on The Passion years ago. Remember, they always, I, was, was it when they took him out of the garden? Oh, maybe, maybe so. He was praying, and when he got up to go to them, he stepped on a snake and crushed it in the dirt, you know, like, I don't know if he did it on purpose, but, you know, that was imagery. But think about that. The image is that Jesus would step on the head of Satan and effectively crush him in the dust. Now, I understand this is provocative because on that night, Satan was forced down to the ground by the word of Jesus. Satan had tried to tempt Jesus. He had tried to get Jesus to fail in his mission. He left him for a, an opportune time, and now the opportune time had certainly come. And Satan is like, you know, licking his chops or, you know, doing his, you know, dastardly hand rubbing. He's got Judas literally wrapped, <laughs> he's wrapped around him. Uh, just his finger, but he's in, he's in Judas. You know, and by all indication, we're not quite sure. And I, I think by the, this time, he knows that, it's, that Jesus is, is the Son of God. In the beginning, they didn't. Satan was questioning him. And then later, the demons are like, we know you are the Son of God. So, but Satan think, thinks he's got him. He's going to kill him. Second Corinthians chapter 2 says uh, that had the, the powers and principalities known what the crucifixion was going to do, they would not have crucified the Lord. You know, Satan did not know. But when God spoke, I'm sure he recognized that voice. And he could do nothing but fall down, just like every demon that Jesus cast out was cast out and down back to the abyss in some cases. I wonder if he understood the significance in that moment or if he is too blind to see that the very first prophecy of the Bible was beginning to be fulfilled right there when Jesus spoke. In any case... That's just something to think about. I like to dwell on some of these things and just draw some of this stuff out. In any case, in the heat of the moment, Peter acts out in rage. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? You know, acting totally on his own, Peter pulls out his sword. He strikes the high priest's servant, this man named Malchus, intending to kill him, no doubt, but his aim is off. I read one commentary that said an unseen hand caught the sword before it killed him. One last chance of the glory of God to be seen. It only results in the cutting off of his ear. Luke chapter 22 tells us that Jesus immediately, I mean, like, think about John. He's just like, he cuts off his ear and then moves on to the next subject. It's like, oh, I'm glad we have Luke's account, the doctor, the physician, who was like, yeah, it was cut off. We saw it in the dirt. I'm sure Luke got ready to, you know, do his doctor thing. 
You know, and Jesus picks it up. I hope he blew it off or, you know, washed it off or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't need to. Uh, we're just made out of dirt anyway. He puts it back on. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine that? Takes his ear out the ground, well, off his shoulder, or wherever it ends up. Puts it back on, moves his hand. And I'm sure he immediately was like, <gasps> you know, I would. I always wonder, in these types of healings and stuff, was there still blood everywhere, all over their clothes and stuff, or did that disappear too? I don't know. It's like chicken and egg kind of question. I don't know. Just like, I, I wonder. There you go. My brain's weird. What a memory Malchus would have of that night, huh? I truly hope that it became his testimony in the years to follow. I hope hope he believed in Christ at that point. But Jesus' rebuke of Peter is straight and to the point. Peter acted brashly and he acted out of God's will. How many times do you think we do that? You know, just grab the sword. And Jesus says, no, just sit still for a minute. I'm not done. Jesus reminds Peter that his kingdom is not one of violence. That's not why he came. If he had, this would not be happening. He certainly had the power to wipe out the soldiers with a word, and he had just shown him and all of them a window to that reality, hadn't he? The cup of suffering, the symbol of God's wrath. This Old Testament in several places where God speaks of the sinners when he comes will drink the cup of his wrath, including the dregs. That's the worst part of wine. You know, I mean, talk to people that are into wine, and I know we're all good Christians, so we're not, but from what I've learned about wine, old wine can get sediments and things in it. It's not good. It's the dregs. It's bitter. It's yucky. And when God uses that terminology, he's like, you're going to drink the cup. You're going to drink all the cup. You're going to put your hand in there, and you're going to scoop out the dregs and eat it. His wrath is going to be full and complete. One commentator pointed this out, though, which is kind of cool. The cup of God's wrath that Jesus will drink, at least it's a cup. It's not a river. It's not a spring. It's a symbol that it does have an end. God's wrath will be poured out in its fullness and completeness on Jesus, but it won't be a continual pouring out. Sadly, there are there is a major world religion that likes to have Jesus always on the cross. Always in, the, they actually have the term for it, right? What, who was raised in the Catholic Church? You know, the perpetual agony of Jesus. Praise God that Jesus died once and for all, for all sin. He was not in perpetual agony. He drank the cup and he threw the cup away because it ended. The wrath was done when Jesus died. This is the cup. This is the symbol of God's wrath. It had been given to him by his father. He had accepted it, and he intended to drink it. Verse 12, Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. You know, a lot of prophecy was unfolding and would be fulfilled that night. And here is one of them. They bind Jesus. Isaiah 53 says, 53, 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. They're going to lead him right back over the Kidron and back up into the city. If the effect of all the blood and waste from the sacrifices affected him on the way there, think of what it's going to do now as he's being led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Listen, there was no need to bind the hands of Jesus. No need to bind this lamb to the altar because he was going willingly and nothing's going to stop him. Verse 13, And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Jesus is brought to Annas first. It tells us that Annas is the father-in-law of the current high priest, a man named Caiaphas. Caiaphas was married to his daughter. This detail shows up in the other Gospels. It shows up again in the book of Acts. It is interesting. And historically, it's something we can look at briefly. The high priest of Israel was supposed to stay in office. We, we just finished the first five books of the Old Testament, right? We finished Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all. Uh, how long did God say the high priest was to stay in office? Life, until he died. In fact, the cities of refuge. You know, if you fled from a city of refuge, you were, you were shown that you had not committed an open murder. You were protected in that city of refuge till the high priest died. And when the high priest died, then you were free to go, and you had served your sentence, so to speak. That's the wonderful thing about Jesus, our high priest. He will never die. He is eternal. We are always going to be safe in him and our refuge in him. But the high priest was supposed to stay in office until he died. But here, the previous high priest is consulted first before Jesus is sent to Caiaphas. And this shows us another glimpse of the Roman grip that they had over Israel. Rome would assign a new high priest every year or every few years to rule over the religious dealings with Israel. They would do this every year or every few years. This was their way of making sure that they had a team player over the Jews. The Romans still allowed the Jews to practice their Judaism, but they didn't want the leader of Judaism to influence the people in any way. So they, it was very political. We always wanted to have someone in their payroll, so to speak. You know, and these guys lived well, by the way. Annas, Caiaphas, these guys had mansions. All from their kickbacks and subsidies and from the kickbacks and subsidies from the money changers. These guys were, uh, I think we looked at this last year or something, but some of these guys were, today's standards were millionaires. They made a lot of money being the chief priests, being in bed with Rome and ruling over the people. It was a good life for them, so they thought. Annas must have had some pretty significant impact on the religious leaders and on the people because they're prompted to bring Jesus to him first, even though he's not currently the high priest. Since he was related by family, perhaps they wanted to make sure that Caiaphas didn't back out of the plan to kill Jesus. You know, like, talk to your son-in-law. So John reminds the reader 
and that it was the same Caiaphas who had prophesied that one man should die for the nation. Remember that back in John chapter 11? It's expedient that one man die for the salvation of the nation. And, and John said this, he spoke prophetically of the death of Jesus that would bring salvation to the nation of Israel and to the world. He's now about to have a part in the fulfillment of that prophecy. Verse 15, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. This is kind of an interesting little tidbit here. As Jesus is taken into the high priest's quarters, Peter is following the crowd up to the door of the complex. John does not name who it was, but one of the priests or council members there, someone that was close to the high priest, knew Jesus and knew Peter. So he speaks to the woman who kept the door and gets him inside the courtyard. There are scholars who point out that, well, whatever John really writes of himself, he says, you know, the disciple that Jesus loved. Uh, therefore, John's probably talking about himself. Others don't believe that. I don't believe that. I believe this is probably Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. Could be someone else, but we know that they were Sanhedrin council people. We know that they were secret followers of Jesus by this time in his ministry. This is probably kind of like a, you know, getting into the club kind of thing. You know, it's a, the doorman gets the nod, like he's with me. So this disciple knew Peter wanted to go in and use his influence as a secret disciple to just get him into the courtyard. So the servant girl begins to suspect something. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. You know, it's interesting. I love a good story. I love a good movie. I love a good book. I started noticing as you're reading this chapter, the way John writes this is very moving. It's almost cinematic. You know, as a scene now will begin to shift back and forth. Just kind of, I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I just picture this like, just such a well-told story. It's like, you know, Jesus is there arrested and now we see Peter and he denies Jesus the first time and then he's warming himself by the fire and then it just shifts down to the next thing. Now, for the purpose of our study tonight, jump down to verse 25 through 27. Now Simon Peter stood and warned himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? It's like, uh, yeah, you're the guy. Peter then denied again, and immediately the rooster crowed. So three times, just as Jesus prophesied, the rooster would crow not before Peter denied Jesus three times. Prophecies being fulfilled. 
But as Peter is confronting the personal demons in his own heart, Jesus is confronting real demons in the house. Look at verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of evil. But if well, why do you strike me? And Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. You know, the former high priest begins to ask Jesus all about his ministry, his disciples, his doctrine. You know, what are you teaching? That's what, it, that's what the word doctrine, didaskalia in the Greek, you know, instruction, teaching. What have you been teaching? You know, who are you? Well, Jesus' answer is interesting here. I spoke openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me, you know, and, and so on. You know, Jesus had officially finished speaking to the religious leaders. If you following the timeline of John's gospel, back in chapter 10, in John 10, Jesus stopped talking to them. He was done. He gave them everything they needed. And then he turned to the crowds and said, listen, my sheep know my voice. If you know my voice, follow me. I'm out. You know, I, I've got other things to do. And from that point, he goes and he heals Lazarus. From that point, he's no longer speaking to them. Now, we know that during the week after his triumphal entry up to his crucifixion, he was in the temple answering questions that they were asking, but he was no longer teaching them doctrine. He was just simply you know, passing their inspection as the lamb, right? As the lambs are all being inspected all week long for sacrifice, Jesus, the lamb of God, is being inspected by him. They're asking him questions to dilemmas and different types of things, but he had no longer spoken to them on the level of like believe in me it's significant because they're pressing him for information Annas is asking him you know what are you teaching who are you what are all these things and Jesus says listen I've already said all that I've had to say the answers to their questions can be found in all of the teachings he had given over the last three and a half years and I thought about this today there's a reason why all the scribes were there it's a good chance that they were scribing things to bring back to Jerusalem to say this is what he said. Probably not a lot of word of mouth necessarily. This was a culture that worked on writing things down too. And the scribes were always there with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Listen, this was a challenge that Jesus is bringing. Telling them, bring forward some of the Jews who had listened to him. Some of the people of his followers. Let them bring charges against him if he has done something wrong. If he said something wrong, let them be witnesses to verify that he's a blasphemer, that he's a heretic, as they are trying to kill him for. The challenge obviously irritated them and left them without a case. So they resorted to violence. One of the temple officers reaches out and strikes Jesus on the face. Now the word that's used there for the palm of the hand in the Greek can be a palm of a hand or a rod or a staff. We're not exactly sure. In any case, he gets hit in the face. The truth was they could not accuse him of speaking evil 
yet they struck him for telling the truth. Just as darkness may try, it cannot overcome light. Jesus openly declares that if you want to know who he is and what he has said, then talk to those who have believed and chosen to follow him. That's what he's saying. Even then, listen, this is incredible. Even then, Jesus is confident that his disciples, that his church that will be born, that his followers will faithfully teach what he has taught them. He's confident as he's going to his death. He's not going to go, okay, let's sit down. You got a, few, got, a, got a few days? No. He's on a timeline. He needs to be crucified by 3 p.m. the next day. He's already told them everything they need to know. In these words, he is entrusting everything that everyone ever needs to know about Jesus to his followers, to his disciples. He's confident in that. And that would happen. Indeed, the disciples will be dragged in front of the priests and the religious leaders in the decades that follow, and they will speak of Jesus and depart all of his truth. It's significant what Jesus says in verse 20, and this is what I want to drill down on as we get ready to close. He says in verse 20, and in secret I have said nothing. To get a better understanding of what aroused the anger of this temple officer, we need to understand what Jesus is referring to here. He's making reference and applying to himself the words of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 45, uh, verses 18 through 23. This is the word of God spoken to the nation of Israel when they had rebelled, when they needed to repent, when they needed to understand that he was their God and that they need not worship any other God. This whole diatribe that God's speaking to the nation about you, you know, your false idols, your wood and stone and metal, you know, come to me. There is no other God besides me. I know not of any other gods. There were no gods before me. There'll be no gods after me. Uh, buried in all these chapters, and Isaiah is, you know, God saying, I will share my glory with no one else. And what did we just read about Jesus as he prayed? You know, Father, share with them the glory that you and I had before the foundation of the world. Again, the deity of Christ. As God shares his glory with no one else except his son, who must be God then. But when Jesus says, and in secret I have said nothing, he's referencing this prophecy that God gives to the nation. Turn to Isaiah 45, because that, that will end on this. Starting in verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain. In other words, God didn't just go, I just feel like creating the world today. He did it to create you and I, to worship him. Who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Look at verse 19. I have not spoken in secret in the dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Is, has that not been the entire ministry of Jesus as God speaking to the nation of Israel? Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. You who have escaped from the nations, they have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? There is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. 
I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Or you would read that in the New Testament as every tongue shall confess. Listen, it's significant that Jesus says that because he's applying this prophecy of God, these words of God to himself. God said, I have not spoken in secret. I have made it very plain and very clear who I am and how one must be saved. And Jesus stands there now after three and a half years of declaring the truth, declaring righteousness, declaring that there was no other Savior besides him, that there was no other way to see the Father, to get to the Father. There was no other Savior but Jesus Christ alone. He had stood there and told them that he had not spoken in secret. When he says this, that's why he gets smacked because this is an astute temple officer who recognizes that he's quoting scripture once again and applying it to himself. Listen, as much as men and women try to shut out the light of the world, Jesus stands before them with the truth because he is the way, the truth, and the life. The wicked can rage against Jesus. They can even inflict violence upon his church, but they will not prevail because Jesus has said and done all that he can to make them believe, yet they will not. Be thankful, Christian, if you have come to him on bended knee now and have praised and worshiped him in truth and the Holy Spirit has entered into you and you are able to understand at whatever level of understanding you have that he is God and he is good. Seek for those who have not come to this valley of decision as we opened with today. And by all means, perhaps God will hear our prayers in a deeper way. Weep for those who will not. There are some who will not. And we should weep for them. We shouldn't wipe them off. We should have the same heart of brokenness that God has. Do you, do you realize the Creator, the one who spoke through Isaiah and said, I am the Lord, I am the creator. I made the earth to be inhabited. Do you realize how broken God's heart's gonna be on the day when he has to send people away from his presence forever? Does that not make you weep? I, I get so tired of people making the comments that they do, especially at a political age about this person and that person and all oh, the, the demon crats and the, you know, and just all these comments that get made. These are people that God created in his own image that have been lied to and deceived by the devil. And one day the devil will be paraded in front of them as he is cast into hell for all of eternity and then they will receive the just reward for their failure to repent and their rebellion against him. That breaks God's heart. If your heart is not broken for sinners, you've got a problem. I don't know any other way to say it, really. Things like that shouldn't be coming out of Christians' mouths. There are wicked people in this world. There are people who will enter into a Christless eternity and they will not come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But nowhere in the scriptures that I have seen is the Christian told that you can write them off and say things about them in a derogatory manner. We are told to pray. Pray without ceasing to pray for them.
God is good, is he not? Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us with such dignity how you step forward, yet at the same time still still declaring that you are almighty God, still declaring that you are the Savior of the world. I, I pray as we go forth from this place that we are moved by these words, we are moved by your words, by the, what John has told us and recorded for us tonight, that we would take these words to heart and that we would go forth from this place and begin to stir up in ourselves through your Holy Spirit a fervency to pray, to gather, to recognize that you are you're calling us as a church to pray, more so as a whole congregation and not just a, a small group. Lord, you took the time to pray before you died for us. We could take the time to pray with the life that you've given us. We thank you that you went to the cross, that you endured the darkness that we were all destined to, but you offered the light, and we took it. And you came and dwelt inside of us, and you gave us salvation, and we're thankful eternally to you. So help us go from this place and shine that to the community in which we live. In Jesus' name, We hope you've been blessed by this message. If you'd like to have more information or if you'd like to support the radio ministry of Calvary Chapel San Pedro with Pastor Jerry Cesario, please visit calvarysp.org or find us on Facebook. Until next time, remember to stay anchored in Jesus and reflecting His grace.